My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website at hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 today. Turn in your Bibles there. Uh, on the screen, you'll see the verses as well. But, uh, but that's kind of what we're going to be doing. And uh, it's going to be the ESV version up on the screen today. But feel free to uh, open any translation that you want uh, so that you can get a better idea of what the original language said. All right. Uh, well, we actually, in, we're, so we're in chapter 10. That means we don't have a whole lot longer left. Uh, we just have like a few more chapters left in 2 Corinthians, and, uh, and then we're going to take a break from Paul's letters for a moment, uh, and we're going to do like a few weeks on something else, and then we're going to uh, get back into the next letter. So, uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. So this is kind of an interesting uh, break in 2 Corinthians. So you first have like the first nine chapters, and they're a little bit different than the last few chapters of 2 Corinthians. So up to this point, um, if you guys remember, like, this has been a really good letter. Like 1 Corinthians, it was a lot of correction and everything. And, uh, and then in 2 Corinthians, it's because, you know, Titus brought back a good report like we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, and Paul was just so happy about that. He's just kind of been talking to them about, you know, different things. Um, but now there's going to be kind of a shift. He's, he's gone from like a place of joy um, and, and kind of, you know, a place of like gratitude uh, to the Lord to all of a sudden um, take a different tone. And a lot of people have looked at these last few chapters of 2 Corinthians and thought, this has to be a totally different letter because this doesn't make sense. Like, I don't understand how he can go from, remember a few weeks ago we talked about Paul's joy that they had like repented and, and gone back to God. And, and then he goes into this whole thing on giving. And we looked at that in chapter eight and nine. And Paul was just really excited about life. He was really excited about the church. And then in chapter 10, starting right now, it's like, what, who made Paul mad? Like, why? Why you guys got to go make Paul mad? Because in 10, 11, 12, and uh, 13, also in 14, he's a little bit, he's going to kind of like start talking to some people like, wait a minute, wh why? Like, we thought everything was good. And so some people have thought that these last chapters were just a completely different letter in general. And they were like, maybe it just got added later, or maybe got added to 2 Corinthians. Some people have even thought that these last chapters were that harsh letter that we talked about. But if you kind of look at where it goes and some wording in it and things like that, uh, there's no evidence that this is anything different. In fact, what I think is happening in these last chapters is there are still some people left in the church that aren't fully repentant yet. They're not fully bought into uh, what everybody else has. Now, the majority of the church, they're like, no, well, our relationship back, you know, with God is back to restored again. Uh, and, and, and things were good. And Paul was like, that's the majority of the church. So in chapters one through nine, he's, he wrote to the majority of the church who's doing well now. But then these final chapters, I think he switches gears and he changes and specifically starts speaking to those people who haven't yet. All right. Because he talks about like, he's about, he's going to show back up. And he's like, and for those of you who your faith, it's not complete yet. Like you're not completely there yet. Um, 
we might have to take some action if I show up and it's, and it's like that. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today, about these two tones that he's kind of, uh, kind of taken. Um, and what they've done, let me just kind of explain what they've done. These people who haven't yet uh, repented from their sin and, 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 and restored back to God and, and their relationship back to Paul, they have successfully um, justified in their minds hanging on to the sin that they love. So, so why is the majority of the church, why are they restored back to God, but why are some of these people not yet? And I think it's because mo like most of the church has, has called it what it is, but then you've got a little bit of the church that has said, no, but there's that, like, that sin that, that we, we love so much, we don't want to get rid of it. Like, we don't want to get rid of that. And so we're going to actually justify it in our minds, right? And in other words, like, and it's here on the screen for you right now. What does it mean to, to justify sin? It means to take sin and convince yourself that it's not. Like, I'm going to, I know that some people say that it is, but I'm going to convince myself that it's not. Why? So that you can feel better about things. It's because we love sin, but we hate feeling the guilt of conviction. Does anybody in here like feeling guilty? about anything? No, like nobody's walking around going, man, if I could just, I feel so good about things. If I could feel guilty once in a while, that'd be great, right? That's not anybody's attitude towards anything. Like conviction, it hurts. Why? Because it's a hit to your pride. And there's a war inside each and every one of us that Galatians 5 talks about between the flesh and the spirit, right? The flesh, which represents kind of our sinful desires that we have, right? And the spirit, which represents the desires for holiness that we've been given after we've been saved. So if we can find a way to have the feeling of holiness, even though it's just a mirage, and continue indulging in the sin we love, why wouldn't we do that? right? Why, why would we not do that? We say it all the time, sin is fun. And it is. And I know you're like, wait, what? Did he just say like sin? Yeah, it is. Because if it wasn't, what would happen? Nobody would do it, right? But it is. And, and, and it's something that we're going to battle for a long time. It's alluring. It's satisfying. It brings us happiness. It entertains us. And before Christ, it's all we knew. We spent our whole life before Christ, with sin at the center. And we had an incredibly close and intimate relationship with it. So it's not that easy to get rid of. And you have these brand new Corinthian believers. I mean, they're like a couple of years old now. But man, they lived their whole lives in that. And everybody around them has been living in that. And so if they can find some way to go back to kind of this lifestyle that's just a little bit easier, that you don't have to feel conviction for, you don't have to feel guilt for, and you can do all of these things that you love, and you can feel good about it, then why would you not do that, right? So what we try to do is we try to create this world where we don't battle anymore, where we don't have to feel guilty anymore, where we don't have to feel convicted anymore, and we try to create this world and that world does exist, but it's never going to exist on this planet. I mean, it will eventually, like in new heaven, new earth type of thing. But right now, it's never going to exist. Yet, the temptation for us is going to be to want to experience it now. Because nobody really likes an inward battle. I don't. Paul didn't either. In Romans chapter 7, he talks about how the sin that he doesn't want to do, he always does. And the life that he wants to live, a life of holiness, he says it, 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 that he doesn't. He's like, I can't. It's so hard. There's so, he talks about this struggle that always happens within himself, even Paul. And if we're honest, that struggle is within all of us as well. 
Like you and I have that. I have that. I'll speak for myself. Like there's this desire for sinful things in my life, and yet there's the, 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 the Holy Spirit who's saying, don't do that, and I, and I don't want to do that. So I have like these conflicting things in my mind. So whenever Paul says, these things that I don't want to do, it seems that's what I do. Like I know what that feels like to be frustrated about that. And the way that I want to live, the holiness that I want to live in, I, I struggle with living. Like I know the frustration from doing that. I know the everyday battle that it is. And rather than struggle with it, we kind of want to be at peace and we want to be at rest. And one day we will be. And, and the way to get as close as possible now, like this side of heaven, the way to get as close to it as, as we possibly can is not justifying sin. That won't make it go away, but it's seeking holiness. That's what we need to do. Like in order to get that, that, to lessen that battle that's within us all the time, we need to constantly be seeking holiness. That's what, that's what, that's where scripture tells us to go. And it's welcoming, it's, it's welcoming conviction and allowing it to transform your life to look more like Jesus. And a lot of times whenever we have conviction, we're like, no, nah, I want to get that out of my life. But we need to welcome it and we need to allow it to transform our life to look more like Jesus, not transforming Jesus to look more like our life. And that's what happens in justification. That's like whenever you justify sin, that's what happens is you're trying to make, you're trying to take Jesus and morph him into, because you have to do that in order to be okay with it and in order to live it. And that's what's going on in Corinth. Like in order to be able to do the things that they want to do, they have to then make Jesus be something that he's not so that they can feel okay with that. And they've kind of transformed him into what they want to believe that he is and that he's for what they're doing instead of against. And that kind of helps you be at peace, but it never ever fully lets you be at peace, ever. Because there's always gonna be this part of you that is going, this isn't right, this isn't okay. And whenever you read into scripture, you're gonna have to like try to morph it into saying something different. Um, and that's kind of what they've done with Paul's words and everything. They're, they're just kind of like, Paul, we don't, we don't want to have to do all of that. We want to continue doing the things that we want to do. And so we're going to say these things about you, and we're going to try to just continue living like that. And Paul's like, I cannot let you do that. Cannot let you, you, you even a small minority, hold tight to that sin that you love. And Paul, from a place of love for the church, love for them, and love for God, he speaks to them in these chapters. And he wants so desperately for them to see the lies that the enemy is using to destroy them. And so, um, so we're going to kind of walk through just a few verses uh, in, in this chapter, um, like very closely. And then we're going to kind of just do an overview kind of towards the end. But, uh, but I want to really, really kind of dig into what he's saying here. So he's about to say, you know, he's about to kind of get heavy on him again. And, uh, and so this is kind of how he starts things out. If you guys look in verse one, just the beginning of verse one, he says this, he says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now it's easy for us to kind of like, if you have like a Bible reading plan and you're just gonna like read through stuff, it's easy to miss some things. But he's like, okay, I, Paul, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So what is he trying to do here? He's trying to set the tone for what he's about to say. Because he just got done saying a lot of positive things, right? And he's like, you guys are doing great, but he's about to speak to that minority and now he needs to set the tone for things. And it's important that we understand the tone behind Paul's words. It was important that they understood the tone behind his words because he started this way on purpose so that they would read with the correct tone. You guys understand how important it is that we read things with the correct 
tone, right? You guys know how ex from experience it is, you know, from, from your experience, how important it is not to only get a message across to someone, but your tone as well. One of the worst things is when you send out a text and somebody misinterprets your tone, right? This happens all the time. Like I may send Tamara something and it'd be like, okay. And she's like, what do you mean, okay? I'm like, no, I just, I just meant okay. Like I just meant, okay. Right? Like you can't, you can't really, you can't really show your tone uh, in a text message, right? And, uh, and, and actually there are, um, it happens all the time that, that like people misinterpret your emotions and there are actually st studies on this, like of people who misinterpret emotion in a text. Um, for instance, uh, read this text from Bob real quick and tell me what emotion you think is linked behind it. Go ahead and put that up there, that next slide. Uh, Austin. Yep, right there. Read this, all right? You get this in a text. My wife missed our 10-year anniversary. Do you guys think that Bob is perturbed or sad? Raise your hand if you think Bob is a little perturbed. Go ahead. No, like, put some hands in there. There's no right. This is a fake person, all right? Ain't nobody getting this wrong. You think, you think he's a little perturbed? Okay. How many of you guys think that Bob's a little sad? You guys think that Bob is sad about that? Okay, that's very interesting. So we have some people in here that if they got this text from Bob, you'd be like, Bob is so mad. And then there's some of you in here that you get this text from Bob and you're like, oh, poor Bob. He's so sad, right? And it's split, like it's split. And it's interesting the study that they did because it was actually on this one right here. Did you guys know that like the majority of men said that Bob was mad? And the majority of women said, no, no, he's sad. <laughs> <laughs> so it's even funny that like, I can't even, like I could send a text to a guy and I could send a text to a girl, the same exact one, and they would both read it differently, like with different emotions behind it, like with a different tone behind it. And so it's kind of funny. In fact, did you guys know, this is all just for free, did you know this is why emojis were created? Do you guys know that this is why emojis were actually invented? True story. Studies show that 50% of texts were being misread or misinterpreted, and emojis were created to help determine tone of a text. And that's why in 2015, the Oxford Dictionary word of the year was not a word. It was this emoji right here. That was the Oxford Dictionary word of the year because it helped people get their tone across whenever they were saying something, all right? Super, super, super interesting, actually. Um, now, it's just, and, and what it says in the Oxford Dictionary is, face with tears of joy. Like, that's what that's called right there, all right? Now, you guys, some of you guys think that, you know, Bob is upset. Some of you guys think that he's happy. What if Bob sent this text message right here? See how that helps? You're like, oh, he's not mad. He's also not sad. Somebody should check on Bob. <laughs> like, right? like, like, I don't know what exactly is happening with him right now, but uh, it's not good, right? Um, and so it just transforms the statement. It's able, like any emoji is, and conversations are always better. And, and this is just regular advice for you guys, but conversations are always better face-to-face, -face, number one, okay? If you can't be face-to-face, -face, second guess is a what? A phone call, right? I mean, you can FaceTime, but you're still face-to-face. -face. But yeah, a phone call is second best, all right? And if for some reason you're only able to communicate by text, like Paul, 
<laughs> right? Like, this is what he, this is all he has. You want to make sure they understand the tone of the heart behind what you're saying. And since Paul didn't have emojis, he used words instead, all right? That's why he says these very specific words at the beginning, because he wants them to understand exactly the tone that he's saying, because he's about to say some harsh things. So he doesn't, but he wants to convey his heart behind what he's about to say. And so Paul says that he entreats them, right? Go ahead and go to the next slide where he says he entreats them, all right? So I think if Paul was able to have emojis, this is what he would say. Paul, myself, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. So let's talk about this for a second. Some translations say urge. If you're reading another translation, it might say urge, or it might say appeal. But this word in the Greek that, that's been translated in the ESV, entreat, or in some of your other translations as urge or appeal, that word means to like earnestly plead someone. All right, like Paul uses it in Romans 12 when he says, I earnestly beg you in view of God's mercy to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Like he uses that word again. But right here he's saying, I am, I am begging you, right? You're, it's like you're begging someone. If someone you loved were headed direction you knew would hurt them, it's, it's the heart with which you would plead with them to change direction. That's what that means. That's what that word entreats. So he's begging them. He's saying, he's saying, I plead with you. You can go to the next one. He says, I plead with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I put other emojis in there. Don't worry. This is the last of them. Okay. Like it's not gonna be the whole time. So, so, cause I want to explain these words because he, he specifically uses these words on purpose. So he's saying, I beg with you. I plead with you by the meekness of Christ first. So that word translated meekness in the ESV is a Greek word that Aristotle defined as the correct point midway between being too angry and never being angry at all. Isn't that interesting? It's someone who is in so much control of their anger that it only manifests when it is right to be so. Not so much when people wrong them, but it's when people wrong others. That's whenever that comes out. This righteous anger of justice and mercy, whenever other people are wronged. But it never crosses the line of becoming sinful. So that's what that word meekness is. That's why I kind of chose that emoji because it's like, mm, like he's just, he's not fully angry, but he's also could be, right? So it's like only in those, only in those righteous moments. Now, the only way we can experience this kind of quality is through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Like our, our flesh, if you guys know yourselves, like I know myself, our flesh produces an attitude of vengeance. Where does vengeance come from? Like that comes from an attitude of, that, that comes from your flesh, all right? And, and, or of being wronged. Like if somebody wrongs me, the reason that I get angry or I get vengeful, it's because of, of my flesh, something that happened in the flesh. But the Spirit produces an empathetic attitude of justice for injustice. So like some people will be like, well, you can't be angry angry. I would agree that it's hard for like you and I to be like a righteous angry, but I do think that we get to taste it and we get to experience it whenever we're angry about the right things like injustice. All right. That's something that's important. So he's, he's saying that he's not about to say what he's going to say because of like personal offense or anger, like not for any wrong committed against him, even though they said some things about him, but he is speaking with the meekness of Jesus himself. Jesus was the epitome of meekness. 
He was, he, he, Jesus never was angry at people whenever they were offending him. But whenever he was in the temple, you guys remember that whole scene, and they were offending the holiness of God, Jesus flipped over a table. He was like, get out of here. All of you people that have turned the house of God into a den of thieves, man, he flips it over. And, and that's a righteous anger that he has. Jesus was so good at this because nobody wronged Jesus like, like nobody was wronged more than Jesus. Like you and I, we may have been wronged before, but we've never been wronged more than Jesus. Yet look at how Jesus responds uh, to so many people, even though he's wronged. And then next, that word gentleness is similar, but just different enough to make, you know, for us to make mention of it, because after all, he uses these purposefully, these two words. Um, and it's a word that means basically this, I have the power and authority to retaliate, yet I'm granting leniency for a moment. I'm gonna give you a chance to correct this injustice. And that's why I kind of put the person with the gavel right there. That's a judge. Maybe you didn't know what that is. It's kind of small, but, uh, but that's what that is. And so it's a person who's got the power to re uh, retaliate. They've got the authority to do it, but yet they're gonna grant leniency, okay? So that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm coming to you in meekness, in the meekness, and I'm begging you and pleading you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's the gentleness that God shows humanity. That same gentleness that he's shown you and I. There's no greater injustice than sinning against God and he has every right as the one and ultimate authority to judge immediately. Yet his, in his gentleness, he gave me time and the chance to hear the gospel. And you see his love and his goodness and, uh, and it caused me to repent and turn to him. And so um, that's kind of what that is. So Paul sets the tone so they'll hopefully know his heart as he continues. And by the way, I just want to say this. To read, to read anything else in this except for what he said would be to interpret scripture wrong. So if you go into this and you read Paul like in, an, you know, like in a vengeful heart, then you're not interpreting scripture correctly. Like he wanted us to know at the beginning of this thing, I say these, even though they're harsh things, I say these things in the, in the, in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. So in verse, uh, in the rest of them right here, it says this, uh, one through two basically. Um, he says, I who am humble, when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. So he's saying, I am well aware of the talking that's going on behind my back about how some of you think I am a wimp when I'm face to face, yet I bring the thunder in my letter. That's basically what he's saying. Like, he's like, I know that you guys say that stuff. He says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And if he were to use emojis, it would go after that, right? He would say all these things and be like, okay, <laughs> right? In the meekness and humbleness and, 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 and gentleness of Jesus, all right, I say these things. But that's a lot of stuff. Like, look at what he's saying right here. I who am humble when face to face with you, he's like, yeah, but bold toward you when I'm away. You think that I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be bold to you, that I'm only bold to you whenever I write to you. When I am present, like when I show up, I'm going to come to you. I don't want to have to show the boldness that you read with such confidence as I count on showing. Like I'm going to show it. You say that I won't show it. I'm going to show it. And I'm going to show it against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Like Paul's really offended that someone is accusing him of walking. You're just like, holy smokes. Like, what they've been saying about you, Paul? 
Like somebody had the audacity to, audacity to say that, that they were walking according to the flesh. And what does that mean? Well, it means only doing what he's doing, like all the things that he's done in Corinth and writing them letters and, and, and trying to send them stuff and show up. It means that the, he, they're saying that he's only been doing that for selfish gain, like with impure motives, motives full of the sinful flesh and absent of the spirit. That's what they're, that's what they're accusing. And again, he's not like going off because he's mad like, and, and like hurt and his feelings are hurt. And so he's going to, you know, he's going to talk to them about that. No, he's, there's more to it than that. Look what he says in verse three. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, and you're like, wait, you just said you weren't walking in the flesh. It's again, we got to understand what he's saying. In other words, he's saying, I may have flesh on the outside. Like he's like, I may like have skin. Like even though I'm, I'm walking around with skin and I do have flesh, he's saying we are not waging war according to the flesh. He's like, I want you to understand this. We are not waging war according to the flesh. He's saying, I may be human, but you can guarantee that we are not fighting spiritual battles against the enemy with human motives or for selfish gain. Now, how would somebody do that? And it unfortunately happens too often. Like if somebody claims to be preaching the word or discipling someone or giving like we talked about last week, or coming to church, or trying to get people to come to church, and it's all because it makes them look good, or because it makes them feel good, or because it makes them look spiritual, or they love the attention that it brings, that is not a love for God. It's a love for self, and is lacking in a love for people, and lacking in a love for God, which will end up damaging the church. It's not going to help the church. Like that's going to end up damaging the church in the long run. And uh, if that is anyone's motives as they are waging war against the lostness that the world has, they're doing it according to the flesh. And they're, in, in fact, they're fighting with the enemy instead of against him, instead of against him. And uh, so don't, don't, like I'm not mad that you're saying that stuff about me. I'm mad because like I, I'm in a righteous like anger and I'm saying these things with with meekness and I'm saying these things with gentleness. So I'm not upset. I'm not upset that you're saying these things about me. I'm upset at the damage that that's causing the church whenever you say those things about me. So that's really important that we understand that. And Paul's saying, I'm not doing that. He's like, and I'm begging you to stop spreading that. So, so stop saying those things because I will show up and I will be bold to your face like you've talked about that I'm bold uh, in my letters, all right? And I don't want to have to show up and do that, um, but I will if it doesn't stop. And in verse four, he says, for the weapons of our warfare, so he talks about this warfare. He's like, no, we're not fighting in the flesh. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They are not selfishly motivated. That's not what we're doing, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. This is really cool. So that word strongholds, and I think I put that up there, is also translated fortresses in some um, translations of scripture, which I like better uh, because that word in the Greek, 
was used to describe a strong military fortification. Like ESV translated into strongholds, and that's fine. Uh, but I think that NASB maybe translates it into fortresses. And I really like the picture that it paints there because it helps us to really understand the power behind it, behind those strongholds, all right? Um, and so it was, it, was, it was used to like describe a strong military fortification. Uh, it was often used metaphorically as it is here to describe any strong points of arguments, strong points or arguments in which people put their trust. All right, so I'm gonna break this down for a second because a lot of people have really strong points or they have really strong arguments like against God and, or, or anything, like in anything that you, that you put your trust in. Like I would think that you have a fortified belief, hopefully you have a fortified belief in Jesus Christ. Hopefully you have a fortified belief in God. But there are other people that he's talking about here who have a fortified belief against God. And he's like, those are the things that, that need to be destroyed. Paul is saying, you know those beliefs that people have that they are so convinced of, that, that are so strong, it's like they're protected within the walls of a strong fortress. Their arguments, their lofty opinions. He's saying weapons of the flesh are useless in penetrating those walls. He's like, what we use is we use divine power. That's the only way that you're going to be able to break the stronghold that some of, the, of, of opinion that some of these people have. And he says, and before, well, and before, before we look into what divine power is, let me just say this. Like, I know it's frustrating living in this city on mission. Like, I understand that it's frustrating. Uh, the enemy is very good at what he does. Do you guys agree? Like, let's give credit where credit is due. Like, he's very good at what he does. Um, and he's filled this world with lies. Uh, and, it, and it's what he does best. And, and people have built up some extremely fortified fortresses around what they believe in this city. I mean, especially here in Park Slope. It's crazy. If our weapons of warfare are of the flesh, like if they are selfishly motivated, I'll just speak for myself. If I am sharing the gospel just so our church can grow or just so that we can brag about leading someone to Jesus, then my words are going to be about as good against that fortress of their belief as just throwing pebbles at it. That's it. That's all that's going to happen. Pebbles don't break down fortresses. They just don't. So what is this divine power he's talking about then? That word divine is literally theos, which is the word for God. That's what that Greek word is that they've translated divine. So what God power has God given us to use that is so strong it can break down even the strongest of barricades? That is so strong that it, it can break down any fortress of, of misbelief, of false belief, any of that stuff. What is it? What is it? What is that power that is so strong? Well, I want to show you some scripture real quick. Because I know what he's talking about because I've seen him talk about it elsewhere and I've seen scriptures talk about it elsewhere. But he just makes mention of it. Hebrews 4.12 says this. For the word of God, everybody say word of God. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This right here. Piercing so deep that it divides soul and spirit. It divides joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What is so powerful, all right, what is so penetrating that it can take even your strongest beliefs, who you are at your core, and expose 
bitterest of false intentions, and then take them captive and turn to obey Christ. It's the word of God. In Ephesians 6, we are given what is known as the armor of God. Maybe some of you guys have read that before. And in verse 17, you can put this up there. It says to take the helmet of salvation and the what? Sword of what? The spirit. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. And you're like, what is it? What sword does the spirit weld? Like, what does he have? The word of God. That's the, that's the sword that the Spirit uses, which is the Word of God. That same two-edged sword in Hebrews is also the same sword that, that, that the Spirit uses. It's the sword he uses to draw people to the Father. And what is that sword? It's the Word of God. So what is the divine power that's, that Paul is speaking of, that he uses, that has the power to penetrate even the mightiest of ideological fortresses? It's the Word of God. Where he's not, God has not called us to throw pebbles. He's called us to throw dynamite. So show people the scriptures, right? Take them to the scriptures. Let them hear not your words. I'm sure you can talk well. I'm sure you're good at it. I'm sure you could sit. I'm sure you could, you could talk really well. But you cannot talk as well as what the scriptures say. Let them hear not your words, but the word of God. This is the only thing that will destroy even the strongest of arguments and opinions. And guys, there are some strong arguments and there are some strong opinions in this city. And if you just show up with the pebbles of your own thoughts, they're not going to break down. You've got to show up with the dynamite of the word of God. That's what we have to use. In verse 5, look what he says. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And what do we do with them? And we take every one of those thoughts captive to obey Christ. The word of God will take those misguided thoughts about who God is, about what love is, what good is, what truth is, and no matter how passionate they are or how, how far they are in the wrong direction, the word will take them captive and turn them towards Christ. And it will take that love for self captive and turn it into a love for God. It will take the desire for sin captive and turn it into a desire for holiness. It will take all thoughts captive to obey Christ. That's the power of the word. That's the power, the divine power that he's talking about. That's what saved the Corinthians. It was the word of God. It wasn't Paul rolling in and being like, hey, I got an idea. Hey, I, got, I had a thought, guys. Let me come in with this thought. No, he came in. What radically changed Corinth? What radically changed you? It wasn't some person's, like it was you taken to the scriptures and you saw for yourself, oh my goodness. And you were penetrated to the heart and you turned and you put your faith and trust in Christ. It's the word of God that, that did that. You love your friends who don't know Christ, share the scriptures with them. You love your family, show scripture to them. And I'm not talking about asking them to sit down and have a Bible study with you because some of you that have lost family or some of you that have lost friends, you walk up to them and you're going to be like, would you like a, to just do a Bible study with me? They're going to be like, no, right? That might happen. And I'm not talking about, I mean, although that would be best. Like, I mean, you can try. And if they're like, yes, you can be like, oh, all right, well, let's do that. Okay, let's have a Bible study. But Maybe eventually you'll get to that point, but maybe it's just slipping a word of scripture to them whenever they're going through something, right? Maybe they're going through a tough time and you're able to just slip some scripture to someone. Maybe they're hopeless and you're just, you want to share just some words of hope, right? And you don't even have to give credit to the Bible, right? You don't have to like tag it 
and be like, James 1.5, right? You don't have to do that because then they're going to be like, there they are just sharing scripture. What if you just used the word and you just slipped that to them and you were like, here you go. Like, I promise God's not going to sue you for plagiarism, all right? Like, it's not going to happen. So like, go for it. Just, just slip that in, all right? Show them the word. Not just, not just give them the word, but show them the word by living it out. We talked about this a few weeks ago in chapter three, that your life is a, a letter from God to people. Like if they see you living out the word, that's a letter from God to them. Like they see that, they notice that. And they may see that and go, what in the world? I want what they have. Like I, 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 whatever they're doing is, is working, what is it? And they might walk up to you and just ask. So however you can, get them the word of God. It's divine power. That is it. Never shy away from the word of God. Use it. That's the power of God. Now, why is Paul saying this? Well, it's because the false teachers that have come in are messing up the Corinthian church's relationship with God and with Paul and are doing so with, with fleshly motives, right? So they're accusing Paul of doing that. They're saying Paul is using fleshly motives when really it's been them. It's like a reverse psychology almost. And some have bought it. Like this, this minority of people that he's speaking to right now, they still bought into it. And most of them, you know, have seen the truth, but a few, a few still believe it and, and are circulating that. And Paul's like, no. Like, we're not upset that you're talking trash about us, but we are upset about the damage that it is causing the church. And then in verse six, he says, and we are ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. He's saying you're almost there, church, but you're not quite there yet. You aren't quite yet to complete obedience, but when you are ready, we are ready to come and we will punish those who want to remain in disobedience. And you're like, oh, what's going to happen? Like, how is he going to do that? Um, it probably means he's going to personally come and start dismissing people from the church. You guys remember whenever we read that in 1 Corinthians? And he's like, look, you got, this, you got this fool that's been like living in open rebellion to God, like in ways that pagans won't even live. And what does he tell him to do? He's like, you guys need to, if that person's not going to turn, you need to dismiss them from the church. Why? Because it protects the church. And ultimately it's for their good because he says, hand them over to Satan. He's like, let them back out into the world. Do not let them back into the gym. What hopefully will happen is they will be beat up so bad by the world that they will come back in repentance to God. And we read in second Corinthians, remember, I think maybe it was chapter five. I can't remember what chapter it was, but he was like, Hey, remember that guy? Let him back in. Like it worked. And so Paul is saying, I will show up and I'm not going to let this happen in the church. And I'm going to, I'm going to start dismissing people. Like we're going to start kicking people out to, for protection of the church and for their good. And, uh, and there are a few other things that um, they were saying about Paul that was damaging the church he wanted to, that he kind of wanted to address. And uh, in verse seven, for instance, um, we're, we're not going to necessarily read through all these verses, but we're just going to kind of highlight them a little bit. And verse 7 uh, reveals that they were saying that he wasn't even a true messenger of Christ. Like These false teachers are trying to convince Corinth that he's not even a true messenger of Christ, like that he was a false apostle. And Paul was like, if you believe they are true apostles, like these false teachers, someone who hadn't even planted a church, who hasn't suffered persecution, never mind having even met Christ like I did, He's like, then certainly you can be confident that I am indeed from Christ. All right? He's like, this is ridiculous. In verse 8, they accused Paul of bragging about his authority in his letters like he was just on a power trip. That's what these false teachers were telling him. He's just bragging. Like all he wanted, he's just on a power trip. He's just bragging about stuff, right? And Paul told them that he would never be ashamed of reminding them 
of the authority that God had given over them because it was for their good. It's, it's very interesting in that verse. Like Paul's authority was not a bad thing. It brought unity to the church. If you think about that in our own lives, right? It brings unity, like leadership and authority brings unity. Like think about, like I think about like our house. Like if Eli and Ellie did not, like if we did not assert authority over them, or like if we did not, like, if we, if we did not remind them, hey, you better remember who's in charge of this thing, all right? Because they can get a little mouthy sometimes, right? Not Eli. Not Ellie either. I'm just kidding. Very, like, I mean, it's just, I don't know what it is. But like, and you've probably done it too. You guys remember whenever you were teenagers and you probably were like, I know everything and my parents are dumb, right? It's good to assert authority. Why? Because if without authority, it's just going to be chaotic. Like, think about the false apostles that were there. Like, they, they were not, they were saying that Paul, he just brags about his authority. Like, but what are they causing? They're causing division in the church. That's under their authority. They've caused a bunch of division in the church. And Paul's like, hey, remember when I was in charge? Everything was great. Like, we all were in unity. We were all striving for the same thing. And now everything's just chaotic. So he's like, it's good that I tell you about the, it's, it's for your good that I actually have authority over you. Um, and then in verse uh, 9 through 11, he reminds them one more time, and you guys can go and read this in your own time, but he reminds them one more time that even though they make fun of his appearance, all right, which they do, um, and, and speaking abilities, like look at this. We're gonna, we are going to read it. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, okay? So he's like, I don't want you just to think that I'm, I'm trying to make you afraid. That's not what I'm trying to do. For they say his letters are weighty, like he speaks big in his letters and, and, and strong. But listen to what they say. But his bodily presence is weak. That's what they're saying about Paul. They're like, he's a wuss. Like Paul's, what, who is he? Like his, look at him. Just look at him. Like he's a weak person. And if you, you guys can go and like do some research on what Paul actually looked like. Like there are some like historians that wrote about Paul's appearance. It's not real impressive. It's kind of like me. Not real impressive, right? But he says his bodily presence is, they say his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. What does that mean? It means he's a terrible speaker. Like whenever he shows up, he looks like a wimp and he can't even talk. Like that's what they're saying about him. And he's saying, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. He's like, quit damaging the church. Stop doing that. Quit bringing these tactics to divide. It's, they're empty and they hold no weight and they're going to be proven wrong when I arrive. You want to say that I'm a timid person? You want to say that I, that I don't hold weight with my words when I'm there like with you? It's going to happen because it has to happen. It needs to happen. Oh, and by the way, I say this in the gentleness and meekness of Jesus, right? So it's easy sometimes to see like, Paul's just mad. He's like, no, he like, he's saying all of these things he wanted to make sure, remember, that they understood that. And then in verse 12, he says the reason the false prophets appear so wonderful, and they, they, they are actually really good at letting everyone know that they're so wonderful. Like they walk around being like, we are wonderful, but Paul's not. The reason for that is because they're only comparing themselves with each other. That's what he accuses them. And it leaves them ignorant of what is true, which is they aren't that big of a deal. Like you're saying Paul's not that big of a deal. Paul would probably say, yeah, you're right, I'm not. But neither are you. No one is, right? They, they should compare themselves to Christ himself. Because when we compare ourselves to Christ, we don't walk away big-headed. We walk away in the humility that we should have um, all the time. 
And then in verse 13 through 16, um, another thing about uh, the false apostles that Paul wanted to bring attention to was their boasting beyond limits. Uh, that's something that they did. You're like, what is boasting beyond limits? I mean, that means like taking credit for stuff you didn't do. All right? Like if you're going to boast beyond your limits, you're taking credit for something that you didn't do. And that's what they did. The apostles that were in Corinth, they were like, we're taking credit for everything going on here in Corinth right now. He's like, that's all they do is they sit and they, and he's like, but Paul's like, I'm not going to boast beyond my limits. He's like, I know what my limits are. In other words, take, you know, like I'm not going to take credit for somebody else's success. Um, and Paul is basically like, open your eyes to see the facade, see the charade that is blinding you guys. And Paul reminds them that he only boasts in the wonderful things that God has used him for. He's like, I don't go beyond my limits. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the things that God has used me for. And he'd be able to boast. And, and this is crazy because if you go and read this, he actually says, you know what? And I'd be able to boast more if I hadn't had to waste so much time on you guys. That's pretty... That's, that's some bold words in gentleness and meekness of Jesus, right? Like whenever he says that, he's like, look, I, I could be telling other people about Jesus. I could be planting churches in other places. I wouldn't have to have left Ephesus. I wouldn't have to spend so much time writing you letters and answering your questions. I could, there's so much work that could have been done for the kingdom if you guys would have just been obedient. In the, whole first, in the whole first place. So he talks about, yeah, they're boasting beyond their limits, but he also talks about wasted time on disobedience. Man, and that, that really gets me. Have you ever thought about how much precious like gospel time has been wasted on our disobedience? Like, can you think about like years that have gone by because you decided to go a different direction, like away from God? Like how many, like how much could have been accomplished by God through you um, if we wouldn't have wasted years? I think about that all the time. I'm like, man, Especially now, like whenever you're like 41, like every single, like I, I, like I think about this all the time, like how much time do I have left? I saw something I shouldn't have seen the other day and it was a chart of like bubbling in how many weeks like the normal person lives and bubbling in them in as you go. You know how many bubbles are filled in when you're 41 years old and how many bubbles are left? No, like you're like, we got to go. Like we, we don't have much time left. Like I saw that the other day and I was like, I should have never seen that. Like I'm almost dead. <laughs> like that's it. But, but he's like, look, and, 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 and that's what I think. I'm like, man, I don't want to waste any more time. I don't, there's not much time. I don't want to waste it on disobedience. And then finally, Paul says he can't even boast in himself. Because if you look at, you know, in verse 17, it's, he says, because it's not that, it's, it's not he that really does anything. In 17, he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Like, why are these people boasting in themselves? Why are they trying to build a name for themselves? Like, shouldn't we be boasting because it's actually the Lord who's done it? For it is not the Lord, it is not the one who commends himself who is approved. Like, they're, they're talking big about themselves. He's like, but the one whom the Lord commends. He's like, if you guys think about it, the Lord has commended what I've done, but he's not commended anything that they've done, right? And that's how he, that's how he ends this chapter, is, uh, or that's how this chapter ends, um, is, uh, is, is just with those words right there. And, I, and I, love, I love how much Paul loves them, that he would be even willing to, to say these things, like go after them one more time. Like he could have just saw the majority of the church turn to Christ and go, all right, cool. Now the rest of them, let's just kick them out. No. He, he's too gentle. He, he's too meek in, what, in how he's responding to them. He's like, that's, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to still come after you. Even though I've written you a letter, even though I, I've written you another letter, 
even though I've come to visit you, and then I wrote you another letter, I'm writing this one, and, and I'm, I'm telling you, I'm giving you, I'm giving you longer, I'm giving you more leniency. So please, see the error of your ways. Quit dividing the church. Turn back to God, and, and he's giving them another chance. And I love how much that he loves the church. But I love even more how much Paul loves God. And whenever you love God more than people, you're able to say these kinds of things. But if you love people and, you're, and, and you love their, what they think about you more than God, then you're probably not going to say these kinds of bold things. But again, I want to make sure that we understand we need to say these things. If we ever need to say these things, you've got to say them in like the meekness and the gentleness that he's talking about here in a respectful way to people, right? You can't just go in berating people, right? Paul is, Paul is only concerned with one thing, and that is bringing glory to God by bringing people to God. That's his, if I look at the life of Paul, I'm like, man, that's it. That's like what he is concerned about. And this is what my life ought to be about as well. And this is what all Christian lives should be about. Um, and so here's some things I want us to reflect on kind of as we, as we close out our time together. Uh, as we reflect today, like there's some awesome things that we've just kind of seen through this. And, and these are kind of the ones that, and maybe you've seen more than just these. Maybe you've written down a few more than just these, but these are the ones that, that I wrote down after listening to this sermon, because <laughs> that's exactly what I do before I come and preach it, is he preaches it to me. Uh, but, uh, but number one, in order to make peace with God, are you justifying sin or are you trusting in Christ who forgave that sin? And in response, you're seeking holiness. It's like in order to make peace with God, are you, are you justifying sin so that you don't have to feel bad? Or are you trusting in Christ who forgave that sin and you respond in holiness? The second one, do you use emojis when texting? No, I'm just kidding. That's not it. When you plead with people, though, when you plead with people concerning the things of God, do you speak with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ? Or do you go at people? Here's another one I thought of. Are your motives for sharing the gospel, coming to church, like doing godly things, are they for selfish reasons? Are they for selfish gain? Are they to look good? Are they so that you can brag? Or to make you feel better about yourself even? I mean, these are all products of walking in the flesh. And these are all, then you would be guilty of using weapons of the flesh. Or do you walk in the spirit? Do you trust in the divine power of the word of God? Do you fight with divine power, trusting in the word to change your life and to change others? Sharing the word and showing the word by your lifestyle. As I said, like time is precious, so let's not waste a moment on thoughts or actions that are not of Christ, but instead allow his word to take those thoughts captive to obedience in Christ. I think that's truly living. That right there is truly living. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at hopecommunitynyc.com.